You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. I just hope that people will will see that there's this this group who's who's dedicated to stopping this this horrible crime um, that they may never have heard of before. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from Harbor Labs and the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, Daniel Golden and Renee Dudley from ProPublica, they're talking about their book, The Ransomware Hunting Team. A Band of Misfits' Improbable Crusade to Save the World from Cybercrime. All right, Joe, before we jump into our stories this week, we have a bit of follow-up here. Yes, Dave, Ignacio writes in to give me a bit of a hard time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Do you want to read this? This is directed to you, not to Dave and Joe. With as pleasure, Joe. Often are. <laughs> <laughs> it says... Hello, Dave. As usual, the podcast is my go-to for work or exercise. And again, I tend to walk faster or hit the keyboard harder when Joe gets his Apple information wrong. <laughs> Last time, it was Apple based on Linux. Wait, did I say that? Uh, I don't know. It's probably a slip of the it tongue, was, it, I would imagine, because yeah, you Apple you know in, that Apple is not based on It is Linux. not. It's based on FreeBSD, yeah. as many things are. Um and there, there are a multitude of reasonings behind that. And I, I'm a big fan of FreeBSD. I've, I've yeah. had it as an operating system. It's a great operating system. All right. Well, step away from the rat hole. Yep. Because we're going to continue Ignacio's yes, letter here. He says, <laughs> this time Joe stated that he prefers open source options for password managers since he's cheap. Well, I'm cheaper. So I prefer the free Apple keychain via the free Mac OS, iOS, iPad OS. And he says, Joe's Microsoft Windows ain't free. For my password manager, it keeps the passcodes encrypted, uh, can be used on any or all of your Apple devices, incorporates not only two-factor, but multi-factor options, plus YubiKey now, too. You don't have to remember any passwords or create any passwords, and it does it for free, cheap, on the only security-first OS. In addition, it helps you identify accounts that were part of a breach, no need to look up on Have I Been Pwned, and tell you which accounts have reused passwords. Joe's Linux or Windows can't claim it's a security first for those OSs. I just want to point out here that um, Ignacio is uh, pedantically spend, spelling Windows with a Z, <laughs> right. as, as they do. Windows, uh, <laughs> Windows, yes. This is spoken like somebody from the Apple's community back in the late 80s, early 90s. That's right, that's or, right. So, early 90s, when so Windows first came out. He goes on and says, if the term open source is his preferred option, why not use Unix BSD, which is what the macOS and iOS is built on? Mm-hmm. You can have lots of fun quizzing Joe on every episode about Apple security options, which are all free and have yet to show up on any breach. Again, Joe and you do a great job, informative and entertaining. You have both mastered the art of communicate to educate. You guys keep up the great work. So a little uh, spoonful of sugar there to make the medicine go down, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> Got a couple of things. Uh, number one, uh, Apple's OS is not the only nor the first security-focused operating system. If you really want a security-focused operating system, you can look at uh, you can look at OpenBSD, which has been around since 1997 and has had only two remote security holes since then. Mm-hmm. Two in, what, almost 30 years? Yeah. That's a lot. Okay. Uh, so if uh, let, me get, let me get a little more pedantic than uh, <laughs> Ignacio it's a, does. It's here. not a contest, Joe. Are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I, w- I will agree okay. that if you have that <laughs> Apple, the, the only thing I don't like about Apple Keychain is the name. Yeah. Uh, everything else is great about it. Okay. Uh, I just don't like the name because that's that's now an overloaded term for something else, right? Yeah. Maybe keychain is is fine because I'm thinking certificate chains, but that's what I think of when I think of cryptography. Mm. But they but Apple they are one of the things they're very good at is marketing, um, and and that's actually what makes their system pretty good. I mean they they are focused on the user, and I've said this about Apple. They do security well. Uh, yeah. They do user focus well. And Dave, I want to point out to you, look through the window mm-hmm. and tell me what logo is on the back of the laptop. <laughs> that that is an Apple logo. That's so. an Apple logo. Yes. I have uh, 
There was an, a spare Apple computer at the office, and uh, somebody said, hey, uh, I've got this Apple computer laying around. Nobody said they would take it. So I said, I'll try it. Uh-huh. So here I am trying it. <laughs> oh, good for you. Welcome welcome to a new world. You've right. expanded your horizons. So far, I don't know what to do with it other than surf the web. This thing is very little more than a Chromebook to me. Yeah. <laughs> well, I will say that uh, actually just earlier this week, I was chatting with somebody over on Mastodon, and they were asking for recommendation of a um, – what's the the time-based password apps – Right. Uh, you know, where you, you, you know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, so like what, Google the Authenticator. Term? Yeah, the, uh, that's, that's right, the Authenticator apps. Right. Uh, and they were asking for recommendations for what to do on iOS when it comes to one of those. And I pointed out that that functionality is actually built into iOS. Right. There it's, is one. It's so, in Keychain, right? Yeah. So yeah. you don't need a third-party one. It's built into the OS, which right. is one of the things I think Ignacio is pointing out here. So. All right. Well, Ignacio, thank you for writing in. Thank you for writing in, Ignacio, and giving Joe a hard time because <laughs> he doesn't get enough of a hard time from me every week. Right. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we would love to hear from you. Our email address is hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. I think it's all in good fun. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, let's do our stories here, Joe. Why don't you start things off for us? Dave, my story actually comes from Coinbase. Okay. They have released a, uh, a an article or a posting. Yep. Um, one of my favorite things about this article is it, at the very top, it has something called the TLDR, yeah. which is too long, didn't read. Right. It just summarizes the article for you in one paragraph. Mm-hmm. But apparently, uh, and actually this is uh, news actually, Coinbase had a uh, security breach back in early February, hmm. uh, but it was very minor and they published a report on what happened. Hmm. And they've walked you through the attack, okay. which is amazing. Yeah. Nobody ever does this. Good for them. Yeah. Uh, So on Sunday, February 5th of this year, several employees uh, started receiving alerts with SMS messages on their cell phones indicating that they needed to urgently log in via the link provided to receive an important message. Hmm. It's a social engineering scam. So this was purporting to come from the company, from Coinbase? Yes, okay. uh, purporting to. Okay. Um, so it's it says it's coming from IT or somebody. They need to come in and get the. Uh, the there's a message you need to you, you need to get uh, you need to read. Okay. So the majority of people ignore the unprompted message, but one employee, believing that it was an important and legitimate message, clicked the link and entered their username and password. Mm. Right. After entering this information and quote unquote logging in, which they weren't doing, they were just at a credential harvesting site. Right. Their username and password was stolen. The employee was prompted to disregard the message and was thanked for complying. Okay. Right? So, oh, hey, look, there's nothing going on here. Everything's fine. Right. So the attacker then tries to log in with the employee's username and password and quickly finds out that they are required to use MFA. Now, the article doesn't state what kind of MFA they're using. Mm. Um, but I would like to think that it's some kind of hard hardware-based thing because of what happens next. Okay. Uh the guy then calls this employee and says, hey, I'm from corporate IT over here at Coinbase. So the bad guy calls the employee. The bad guy calls yeah. the employee. And okay. he says one of the most powerful things you can say, the most powerful phrases in the social engineering attacker's toolkit. Yeah. I need your help. <laughs> right. Because everybody wants to be helpful. Right. Yeah. And the employee logs into their workstation and starts following the instructions that the guy is giving them over huh. the phone. Uh, and... The employee notices that these instructions are going a little bit, becoming more and more suspicious as time goes on. Hmm. Uh, and it's good good information to know that they actually didn't make it into any customer wallets or any any. Actually, there are no customer wallets at Coinbase. There are Coinbase wallets. Okay, you have an account at Coinbase. Um, so again, I'm going to say this again because I think it can't be said enough. When you have your money. Your cryptocurrency at an exchange, that is technically the cryptocurrencies, uh, uh, the exchange's cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. You are relying on them to give it back to you when you ask for it. Hmm. Uh, there's a lot of trust. Coinbase, I'm not impugning Coinbase here. Coinbase is not going to steal your crypto. Right. Uh, but there is technically, in the technical aspect, there is nothing to stop them from doing it. The only it's like a bank. There's technically nothing to stop a bank from taking your money and keeping it. Right. But there are other reasons to have that happen. Yeah. Problem here is that if if someone does get into your crypt into their crypto wallet and takes their cryptocurrency, there's nothing anybody's going to do to get that money back. 
Mm. Uh, except find the people that did it uh, and get them to cough up their uh, their um, their their private keys. Ask nicely. Ask nicely, right, <laughs> with a rubber hose. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's called rubber hose cryptanalysis. That's actually a term of art. It's one of my favorite terms of art. <laughs> so uh, they did get some employee information, mm-hmm. which, by the way, is not insignificant. This is, this is uh, you know, if, if somebody got a load of, uh, you know, not a load, but a small bit of employee information from Coinbase, that's information that's very critical, and they need to know exactly who that was uh, that has been leaked. All, and they need to talk to everybody that who had their information breached because they're going to be the next targets. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think Coinbase is uh, is on top of that because their uh, computer security incident response team was aware of the incident within 10 minutes because their SIM let them know uh, that security incident and event reporting system. Yeah. Um, and uh, they reached out to the employee via a messaging app, an internal messaging app, and said, someone's trying to get access to your account. At which point, I don't know what they said exactly, but they they let them know that the scam or them – I don't know if it's a man or a woman. They don't tell yeah. you. And rightfully so. They shouldn't. Um, the employee then terminated the phone call and stopped all c- communication with this uh, with this scammer. Hmm. So the uh, the, C- the C-CERT or the incident response team, I'm just going to say that, immediately suspended all access for the victimized employee and launched this full investigation. Um, but they say – here. this is a little bit of corporate speak. Because of our layered control environment, there were no <laughs> funds and no customer information was compromised. The cleanup was relatively quick, but still, there are a lot of lessons to be learned here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the article goes on to say that anybody can be targeted and victimized by social engineering attacks, which, right. which is 100% true. Um, I'd like to, to point out that this person, uh, while we like to sit here and, and think, this person is, is the victim of this attack. Mm-hmm. This, this employee, yeah, um, you know, they 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 were convinced and they believed that they what they were doing was right, although their suspicions were aroused. But I don't know how I feel about this with the fact that there is literally millions of dollars at stake here mm-hmm. of other people's money. Mm. You know, maybe somebody should be more security minded. I don't know. I'm not going to. Well, I mean, they didn't get to the money. They so didn't the, get to the money. The MFA, it worked. It worked. Yeah. yeah they're, everything they're, they did worked. Everything. Did, yeah. So, so so good Good on them. Good on them. Yeah. Um, one thing that caught my eye here is that the employees were hit with these SMS messages that made that that uh, prompted them to log in. Right. So when they click through on the SMS message, they go to a fake login page. Right. Um, this is where I think a password manager could have caught this. Right. Because the password manager would have said, hold on here, cowboy. This is not where we usually log in for right. this site. That's you correct. You sure you want to do this? Yep. Uh, and so it could have been nipped in the bud there before it got any farther. Right. That's a good point. Yeah. What's interesting is that somebody has phone numbers for people who work at Coinbase. Mm-hmm. So there's already some kind of some kind of data breach out there about that. Right. Um, right. I don't know how these people got that information. I mean, they could have just gotten it from LinkedIn and then gone to these people's websites and oh, built, yeah. built a dossier or built, you know, <laughs> done open source intelligence gathering to get this information. Let me tell you, Joe, the conversations that I have had with the folks on the CyberWire sales team about the tools that are out there for information on sales prospects. Really? They yeah. Well, they raised my eyebrows. I mean, they basically the there are companies out there who not surprisingly, they just go out there and they scrape everything and then they aggregate it and they cross-reference it. And so if some let's say for example, if somebody wants to sell something to me, right. they can put my name in there and it'll bring up everything they know about me. Here's where he is on Twitter, here's where he is on Facebook, here's his phone number, here's his here's his work phone number, here's what he's posted about this, you know, yeah. just so it's not it's there's no real barrier to collecting if I went out there and said, "Hey, I want the phone numbers of everybody you have at cyberwire uh that's a click away right you know probably a few bucks and right. and you have access to that right I, I yeah. wonder how much that service costs a month I don't know, I don't know, but hey, if you can get access to millions of dollars of crypto, it's worth it, yeah, right. Yeah, uh, and, and I'm sure that this is not the only uh, the only spot that or the only people they're targeting. Um, one of the things that is in this article that is one of your uh, one of your dog whistle. I don't know what to say, but one of the things that um, that that kind of gets your goat, yeah, grinds your gears, yeah, frosts you, <laughs> yeah. 
This wasn't the, here's, I'm going to quote this from the article. <laughs> okay. This wasn't just any attacker. We believe this individual was associated with a highly persistent and sophisticated attack campaign. Well, has been targeting scores of companies this, since last year. Of course. Right. Of course. There's nothing we could have done, Joe. Well, but they did it. <laughs> That's true. This is like the flip they, side, right? Yeah, you're right. Hey, look, we got these sophisticated guys and we stopped them. Yeah. That's true. Right, good. Coinbase did a good job here. And, and you That's know what? True. My favorite thing about this article is that they published this. Mm-hmm. This is brilliant. So, so I, here's a question for yeah. you. Would this article have been published had they been unsuccessful? Oh, excellent question. Dave. Right? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's easy to toot your own horn when everything went well. Right. That's a good question. Yeah. I don't know. Not to make, I mean, I don't want to, you know, uh, yuck someone's yum, as they say, right. but uh, it's, you know. I'll tell you what we'll do, Dave. You and I will successfully hack Coinbase, get millions of dollars, <laughs> and then see if. <laughs> yeah. If we successfully hack Coinbase and we get millions of dollars, uh, this will be our last show, Joe. Right. <laughs> we'll be done. <laughs> we'll be on a yacht somewhere. Yep. You and I. International waters. That's right. That's right. <laughs> With our brand new uh, Apple laptops. That's right. <laughs> All right. Interesting story. And uh, we will have a link to that in the show notes if you want to check it out. Uh, my story this week comes from Forbes. Actually, this is written by Cyrus Farivar, who's been a guest on our show before. All right. Uh, good author. He is a, a senior writer uh, over at Forbes. And uh, the article is titled, These Companies Say They Can Recover Stolen Crypto. That Rarely Happens. So this is interesting here, Joe. I mean, imagine that you are someone who has fallen victim to one of the many scams that we talk about here. Right. And you're trying to figure out what to do. Perhaps you've reached out to law enforcement. Because, again, as we've talked about here many times, it seems as though certainly local law enforcement either doesn't know what to do, doesn't have right. the resources yep. to try to track these things down. Uh-huh. Um, and even heard- if, I mean, well, I think the it's a big mystery to a lot of people in general and generally, people in law enforcement tend not to be too technical. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think more and more we're seeing that law enforcement agencies, and even down to the local level, they have people who are assigned to be specializing in this sort of fraud, uh, elder fraud and, and that right. sort of thing. So right. they're, they're there to try to help to the degree that they can, but there's a limited amount of funding, expertise, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So imagine uh, this article talks about a gentleman who only goes by uh, the name M for his privacy. Mm-hmm. Um, he lost over half a million bucks mm. uh, to a scammer, uh, cryptocurrency. And so one of the things he did was he went out and he searched for organizations who could perhaps help him get some of the money back. Mm-hmm. And according to this article, he went to an organization called Cypherblade. Uh, and that's a company that claims to have recovered millions of dollars in stolen cryptocurrency. Really? He signed a contract with them, uh, agreed to pay up to $6,500 or to pay $6,500 for up to 10 hours of work. Uh, and also, if Cypherblade got any of the money back, they would get 12.5% of whatever they got back. Uh, that would be the only way I'd pay anybody like this. Mm. I would not pay them a retainer. Mm-hmm. I'd be like, if you think you can get the money back, heck— I'll give you not 12.5%, 25%. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, according to this person, uh, more than a year has passed and he hasn't seen a dollar back. Shocker. Well, and that's really what this article is about. It it goes into that there are several companies who have uh, opened up, opened for business, claiming to be able to do this sort of thing to help you get your cryptocurrency back. Mm -hmm. And... It seems as though what uh, Cyrus Verif- what Cyrus uh, Faravar has has found out is that their success rate isn't not very high. Um, I'm and, surprised their success rate is greater than zero. Yeah, how do they how do they do any of that? Well, the article points out that there are ways to track um, crypto transactions, right? As you know, do they do they get law enforcement involved at some point in time? They can. Okay. Um, This article points out that uh, some of these companies uh, simply use another company called Chainalysis. And I believe we've talked about Chainalysis. We have talked about Chainalysis. They monitor uh, blockchains and they can tell you where the the flow of cryptocurrency goes. Right. And I 
if memory serves me right, they have started monitoring cross-blockchain transactions. So okay. if I exchange Bitcoin for Ethereum, that's really difficult to track. Yeah. But these guys have come up with a way to do it. Like, okay, this guy put $100,000 worth of Bitcoin into this into this wallet, and then somebody else got $100,000 worth of Ethereum on, on into this wallet. That's yeah. probably the same money. Right. So this article points out that Chainalysis, you can get certified by Chainalysis for around 800 bucks. You can earn a certification on tracking down these sorts of things. Really? Um, but these companies who are trying to go after these folks who stole your crypto, uh, they can do a certain amount of tracing, mm-hmm. but then they don't have law enforcement right. powers. There's nothing they're ever going to do to get someone to cough up the private keys aside from... Uh, maybe uh, hacking into them, or maybe maybe working with a crypto exchange if they have if these guys are if these criminals are dumb enough to put that money into a crypto exchange. Mm-hmm. But they're probably not. Yeah, they're probably using their own wallets. Yeah, they say that they do work with law enforcement, and then they the reports that they make they provide to law enforcement to try to partner with them to get money back. And they do point out like this company Cypherblade, um, they provided uh, the reporter with. Uh, several satisfied customers, people who uh, say that Cypherblade helped them recover their pilfered crypto. Okay. So there is some success here. I'd like to know how that went down, how the how they got the money back. Yeah. I guess the, the whole point of, of this article and why I think it's good to share with our audience is that um, my take on this, and I'm curious what you think, Joe— is that your odds of getting anything back are pretty low. They are, very low. And so I can't help wondering if engaging with these sorts of companies is throwing good money after bad. I would say it is. And the only way I'd go, I would engage with them is if they worked entirely based on the percentage of the crypto they got back for me. Yeah. That would be it. Um, I wouldn't engage with them otherwise. I wouldn't send them 6,500 bucks to, to, to um, what's the word, retain them. Right. for so many hours, um, I would, I would say, I would offer them twice what their, what their commission is. Mm-hmm. I'd say, you know, this 12.5% and 6,500 bucks, we're talking about, uh, we're talking about half a million dollars in crypto. Is that what it was? Half a million? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm going to give you a quarter of that, which is much more than, than, um, uh, the difference is much more than, than $6,500. In fact, it's many times more. You should just take that Yeah. and see what they say. If they say no, they say no because they know their success rate is not that high. And they've done the multiplication of their success rate times the uh, delta, and they know, no, we're not going to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in this article, they spoke with a gentleman named Tony Moore, who's a detective with the L.A. County Sheriff's Department, and he specializes in cryptocurrency crimes. Uh, and he says that he encountered at least a dozen scam victims who reported such crimes to his agency after they had already hired one of these companies, he says he recommends that victims don't engage one. They quote him. He says, I always tell them, no, you're going to pay them for what I'm already doing. They can't seize. You're going to waste your money for them to trace your money when that's what we do here. Right. Um, interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. LAPD has, is it LAPD? Uh, LA Sheriff's Department. LA Sheriff's Department has, yeah. has their own cryptocurrency guy. Mm-hmm. And that's correct. Law enforcement does have the power to seize. Yeah. Um, but even if they seize, there's no guarantee they're getting it, getting it back either. Right. Uh, because those keys may be well hidden anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you, you, there's no guarantee you're going to get it back. You know, the, the, the only thing you can do is threaten a person with a long sentence yeah. and then incentivize them to give up their ill-gotten gains. Right. Right. Yeah, and I also uh, just reiterate what we've heard from uh, folks at the FBI, that the FBI wants to hear from you. Right. If stuff, either contact your local field office. Certainly when we're up in the neighborhood of half a million dollars, I think that's going to warrant the FBI's yeah, attention. I think so. Um, Maybe. So that's a, they, they should be on your list of folks to contact if you find yourself scammed because they've said time and again that they want to know. And, they do want to know. And they um, have the ability— yeah. Uh, more than a lot of other uh, agencies, they have the ability to help. They have the power. Right. right? But whether or not they do for your particular case is up in the air, though. Yeah. It's, you know, they might not. They might not be able to do anything about it. It might not be a priority. Um, 
I don't know. It, yeah. But yes, you should definitely let them know about it. If if they if you get if you get their attention, then you can bring the resources they have to offer. There and asking is free. That's There's right. Absolutely That's no right. reason to That's not right. ask them. Right. So it seems as though you know some people have gotten satisfaction from these companies, but it seems I think overall. Uh, just buyer beware. Yeah, you know, there's a there's a good chance that for a lot of reasons, there's a good chance that you could spend money on this sort of thing and end up not really getting anything back. Not getting anything back, exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, we will have a link to that story in the show notes. Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from Josh. Uh, it's an email. Mm-hmm. You want to read the subject and then the rest of the email? <clears throat> sure. The subject says, your wallet is about to be suspended. Your wallet is about to be suspended. Apply for KYC verification. We're writing to inform you that in order to continue using our wallet service, it's important to obtain KYC, know your customer verification. KYC verification helps us to ensure that we're providing our services to legitimate customers. By completing KYC verification, you'll be able to securely store, withdraw, and transfer funds without any interruptions. It also helps us to protect you against financial fraud and other security threats. We urge you to complete KYC verification as soon as possible to avoid suspension of your wallet. Thank you for understanding. Sincerely. And it just ends there, sincerely. Yeah. Uh, this is actually uh, looking like it's coming from something called a company called MetaMask. Hmm. Uh, I didn't know what MetaMask was until this morning, but it is a crypto wallet okay. that has browser integration, so you can interact with the Ethereum blockchain oh. and use smart smart contracts. So MetaMask is a legit company. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it is. And uh, the link that's in there uh, looks like it takes you to MetaMask, but the address that it goes to is not MetaMask. Ah. It's a, a fake website. Um Josh goes on to say, here's a pretty good attempt at getting people's crypto wallets. It fooled me until I remembered that I don't have a MetaMask wallet. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and I took a look where the link actually goes, and it doesn't go where it says it goes. Yeah. The spelling and grammar is pretty good, as well as the following, uh, the formatting and design, which is almost indistinguishable from the real website. It is. Mm. Uh, he opened up the link in a virtual machine, and it took him to a place that says, uh, a page that says, enter your recovery phase. So I actually tried this as well and, oh. and went to this website. The first thing that happens is you get a CAPTCHA, right? Hmm. That looks like, it. you know, they're trying to validate that you're a human. And yeah. then it goes, it does. It says, it looks like a MetaMask website. It's not. And it says, enter your passphrase. Hmm. Uh, and if you, if you do this, two things. If you do this, they get your private keys. The passphrase is a mapping of uh, of words, English words, to your private key. Okay. Um, the other thing is that there is no know your client requirement for wallets. Hmm. Okay. They, they can't do it. It's not, not enforceable. Okay. You can go out and get a crypto wallet and just put all the crypto you want in it. As long as you're keeping and managing the keys, yeah. there, is no, there is no responsibility on anybody's part for a know your customer requirement. And that's a fintech thing. That's a banking system a, thing. If right? you keep yeah. your money on a cryptocurrency exchange, there are know your customer requirements. I see. Okay. Right? Because that's where money gets laundered a lot. I see. Now, it's not saying that money can't be laundered through crypto wallets. It absolutely can. Yeah. It's just there's no enforceable action there. I see. So okay. It's, uh, it's, it's an interesting scam preying on people who don't understand how cryptocurrency works. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's plenty of those. Right. Yep. <laughs> plenty mean, of those and plenty of people have cryptocurrency don't, right. and don't know how it works. Right. Yeah. No shame there. Just, right. you know, it's it's complicated and easy to get confused. It is. Absolutely. And that's what this is hoping to do is confuse you. Right. All right. Well, our thanks to Josh for sending this in. Uh, again, we would love to hear from you. If you have something you'd like us to consider for our catch of the day, you can email us. It's hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Daniel Golden and Renee Dudley. They are from ProPublica, and we are talking about their new book, The Ransomware Hunting Team, a band of misfits improbable crusade to save the world from cybercrime. Here's my conversation with Daniel Golden and Renee Dudley. 
So I joined ProPublica in 2018 as a tech reporter, and Dan was my editor. And we were brainstorming ideas that I should work on for the year. And one of the things that I was hearing about from sources in corporate America was this crime called ransomware was taking hold. And I was hearing that companies were getting hit by ransomware. The amounts were growing and they they were worried about it and they were trying to keep it secret. And I was intrigued about this crime. You know, I'd heard about it. It didn't make news every day back then like it does now. And I brought it up with Dan and he was intrigued too. And we both agreed that there had to be some U.S. connection to ransomware beyond the fact that there are so many victims here. Um, and so, so, so I dug in. And before long, I started hearing about this man, Demon Slay 335, um, who ultimately became the hero of our book. His real name is Michael Gillespie. And everybody said that Demon Slay 335 was the most knowledgeable person essentially on the planet when it came to ransomware. And I found out that he was a part of this global team that looks for vulnerabilities in the hundreds of strains of ransomware that exist, and they create free tools that help victims recover their files without paying hackers. And I'm sure your listeners will be familiar, but uh, for those who, who, who are uninitiated, ransomware it, it encrypts your files and makes them inaccessible, and you have to pay a hacker to, to get them back. And so this team was making these tools that allowed people to get their files back without having to pay hackers and feed into this entire ransomware economy. And so I, I hooked up with Demon Slay 335. I, I called him at his office, uh, which was a nerds on t- call IT repair shop in the town of Normal, Illinois. And mm. we started talking and he was incredibly helpful for a variety of stories that I wrote and Dan edited for ProPublica that became a part of a, a year long series. And he was so knowledgeable that you know, I wanted to get him to know him more and I wanted to learn more about this team. And I went to go visit him, you know, months after the story started rolling out. And when when I got to his home in Illinois, I was I was pretty blown away by what I saw. At this point, I realized, you know, I knew from talking to him and some of his teammates that the ransomware hunting team that he was a part of was this pro bono you know, global team that was helping people for free. But what I didn't know is that Michael was doing it while while facing a multitude of personal crises. I met him, you know, outside his rundown, you know, pretty rundown home in this working class neighborhood. Needed a lot of repairs. He's this humble guy. You know, he, he's 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 wearing. Uh, you know, jeans and a ratty T-shirt, and you know, I got talking to him, and he he shared with me his struggles with, you know, just struggling to make ends meet. He can't, you know, he was unable to pay his bills, and one month he'd have to turn off the electric, the next month the water, just to make ends meet. He almost lost his home, and he'd just beaten cancer, and meanwhile, meanwhile, he's working day and night to create these tools to save victims who will never know his name. And what what struck me was that here's somebody who's the best in the world at what he does, and he's living in these extremely humble circumstances without seeking fame or money or any of the normal motivations, and um, just with, with zero fanfare. And I thought that was really remarkable. And I called Dan from from the airport on my way back to Boston. And I said, I thought this guy was was really interesting. And and we've got to at least do a profile on him. And we did. And, uh, you know, ultimately, uh, he became the hero of our book, The Ransomware Hunting Team. So, Dan, the book really comes at it from from the point of view of, of highlighting the folks who are out there 
trying to help the victims. And and that's not an angle that I think we see a lot of when it comes to the coverage of ransomware. What decided or what was the decision between the two of you to to take that approach? Well, we wanted to write a, a book that would be accessible to everybody that, that everybody could enjoy, whether they were technology experts or not. So, you know, we, we boned up on the cryptography enough so that we could explain some of the technical aspects, but we wanted to tell a human story and a narrative. And these people were extremely interesting, you know, not just Michael, but his mentor, Fabian, uh, was fascinating guy who had uh, grown up in uh, Germany under difficult circumstances and then felt that it was possible because of his exploits against ransomware that uh, organized crime or uh, might be after him, Russian organized crime. And he uh, he moved to England and he was living kind of as a as a hermit there. And just many other people, uh, the team in general, they, they uh, are not your standard sort of Ivy League success stories. Some of them didn't go to college at all. Uh, some of them, uh, you know, one Fabian didn't even finish high school. Um, they've had backgrounds of, of poverty or abuse. Uh, one fellow in Hungary is extremely superstitious and a bit odd. Um, some of them are on the on the on the autism spectrum, and so it, we just thought that these were fascinating personal stories. And what we tried to do was set their stories against a broader framework where we tell essentially the history of ransomware from its invention to the to the present day. And while we were working on the book, you know, the world had the bad luck, but we as journalists had the good luck that ransomware kept getting worse and worse. So that uh, when we started, you know, the attacks were perhaps for thousands or tens of thousands of dollars. As we went on, the, the demands rose to hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars that the targets shifted from being individuals to being corporations, universities, hospitals, uh, even police departments and, and governments. And the, the hackers became sophisticated so that before they would uh, actually make the ransomware attack, they would get inside the computer and steal data so that even if you could uh, somehow preserve your files, you would still have to pay a ransom because uh, otherwise they would uh, make your uh, uh, private information available. So uh, it became a bigger and bigger threat, uh, a more and more worrisome crime. It it made the top of the news with the colonial pipeline attack and with Biden trying to negotiate with Putin about cracking down on ransomware gangs. So we found ourselves dealing with both the compelling personal story and what was becoming one of the top threats to uh, to world uh, to, to people's security and uh, and well-being. You know, Renee, one of the things that strikes me as I read the book was how it really is a bit of a, a David versus Goliath story here. I mean, you have these ransomware operators who are demanding millions of dollars. And as you point out, uh, the, the the folks that you highlight here are not well-to-do, wealthy people who are being underwritten by big organizations. That was really a bit of a revelation for me because I, I think of the folks who work in cybersecurity are generally, I think the perception anyway, is that they're very well paid. They're very in demand. Um, but in this case, this is really, this is a ragtag team here. It is. And a, a, you make a few interesting points there. It, it certainly is a ragtag team. Um, they call themselves the, this band of misfits. Many of them come from backgrounds of poverty and abuse. They were bullied in school. They tend to keep to themselves and not fit into typical you know, social structures and in-person friendships. And they've really found, found their niche and found their calling online. A lot of them have this sense that the internet is their intellectual home and they don't want bad guys there. So they, they see this as both an intellectual challenge and a way to fight back against the boys who came for them uh, when they were younger. And, and I'll also mention, a lot of them do have jobs 
in the security field. Fabian Wosar, for example, um, is one of the masterminds of, of MSYSoft um, antivirus software. But others like Michael, you know, he's he's fixing broken hard drives. Uh, you know, he's spent 10 years at the Nerds on Call IoT repair shop fixing broken hard drives. Um, so, but you're right, no, none of them were, were, were getting rich from any of this. On your other point of the David versus Goliath, uh, you know, in terms of here's the, these people hunting uh, ransomware, fighting against these hackers. The strange thing is that both the hunters and the hackers have a lot in common. They have essentially the same skill set. They're experts in cryptography. From what we can tell, a lot of them are self-taught, you know, learning through tutorials online and um, on YouTube and checking books out of the library. Um, and they have a lot of the same interests, video games. They like some of the same movies. A couple of, you know, a couple of the people on the team are really into Disney and Michael Gillespie's favorite movie is The Lion King. And there's a ransomware called Akuna Matata. You know, the, the, the similarities, uh, you know, we don't know a ton about the hackers, but there's certainly... Um, evidence that, th- that they that they share a lot of the same interests and tend to be misfits. On the other hand, you're absolutely right that, you know, while some of them are teenagers who are trying to make money or gang leaders who want a Lamborghini, there's, there's increasing evidence that, that some of the hackers are working uh, under the protection or possibly at the behest of enemy governments. So it's, it's, uh, you know, it's certainly wild that there's this group of people working against these increasingly organized, potentially state-sponsored hackers. You know, one of the, the fascinating parts in the book for me is you have a chapter here uh, titled The FBI's Dilemma. Um, and I'm curious, uh, Dan, if you can give us some insights from that. I mean, the this ransomware scourge really hit at a time when the FBI was facing some of their own challenges. Yeah, the FBI uh, for a long time uh, dismissed ransomware as kind of an ankle-biter crime with low amounts of, of, of money involved, not worth their attention. And that was symptomatic of the FBI generally giving a lower priority to cybercrime than it would to uh, would have to, say, uh, terrorism. And uh, uh, in general, the, the, the FBI has this kind of uh, macho culture and this belief that any agent can can do any kind of case, which might be true in some situations, but not in a highly technical cyber case. And just in terms of manpower, it doesn't have the kind of numbers of uh, uh, cyber expertise agents that um, it probably needs. You know, other other uh, examples we talk about the Dutch National Police in the book have, uh, you know, they'll pair up each agent with somebody who's cyber savvy and the FBI doesn't have anywhere near like those numbers, partly due to its culture, partly due to its resources, partly due to its taking a look at ransomware and then deciding, well, this really isn't worth our time. They were taken very much by surprise by by the increasing threat of ransomware as the dollar amounts ratcheted up in the the, the attacks shifted from people to uh, major organizations and businesses, and uh, they were you know well behind the curve, and they also were not particularly receptive to uh, the hunting team and uh, its members who could offer abilities to crack codes or provide keys. And the FBI really that was it seemed to feel that wasn't really what it what it did, you know, and it, it its focus is predominantly on arresting people. And that's difficult in these cases because the criminals are uh, often in countries where we don't have extradition agreements with, like Russia or Iran. You know, sometimes you have to go after the the infrastructure, the servers or or other aspects rather than uh, just straight out try to arrest somebody who you're never going to get until they decide, unless they decide to, you know, vacation on the Riviera. The, the whole system was not really geared up for this kind of international threat and as a result, uh, uh, American uh, organizations and individuals uh, suffered a, a great deal of needless harm. 
So, Renee, I'm curious, what are the take-homes for you? What do you hope that people take away from the book? You know, I hope people will come away with a sense of hope because we, we end with some of the changes that are afoot. First of all, one of the things that I'm that I that I've taken away from writing it is that there are these ex- these ordinary people who are just doing their day jobs but doing these absolutely extraordinary things in their spare time. They have filled a void in American society through their contributions. You mentioned the FBI, you know, federal law enforcement, the federal government in general up until the colonial pipeline attack essentially ignored the problem of ransomware uh, while this ragtag team was, you know, spending all of their spare time fighting it. It, it, It's it's pretty incredible what they've been able to accomplish. Um, First of all, they've saved millions of victims from paying billions of dollars to hackers since they've started in, in 2016. Um, and all of these resources are available on Michael's own website, which is called ID Ransomware. It's a site that he set up so that victims of ransomware could upload sample encrypted files, figure out what they were afflicted with, and then find out if free help was ab- available and how to get it. So from a very practical sense, uh, you know, I hope people will, will know that there are resources out there this team is out there to to help them. Um, from a more from a more uh, from a national standpoint, the FBI is increasingly receptive to what the ransomware hunting team and private researchers in general have to offer, which is a lot. And we've seen examples of the hunting team providing uh, huge, you know, large you know, household name company victims with. Uh, with their free tools through through the FBI. In other words, victims will come to the FBI to report a crime, and they'll end up getting this help that they otherwise might not have might not have known about. So there's there's promising things happening, and I just hope that people will will see that there's this this group who's who's dedicated to stopping this this horrible crime um, that they may never have heard of before. Dan, how about you? Any final thoughts? Yeah, I think I'd like to see the book increase transparency about ransomware and make victims more willing to come forward and companies to be more public about it. I mean, one of the problems that has allowed ransomware to become so prevalent and dangerous is the limited knowledge about it. Very few people report the attacks to the FBI. A lot of public companies don't uh, announce that they've been hit by ransomware. If they say anything at all to their investors, they say, oh, we had a malware incident. I'd like to see this book as being a, a, a way to say, look, ransomware is all over the place. It's not necessarily shameful to have been hit by it. And the more that people come forward, they talk about it, the more pressure they will bring on the government and society to find uh, solutions. So I think uh, I'd like to see this book as the beginning of a national conversation that ends up in greater awareness, uh, greater, stronger defenses, and uh, more discussion about the uh, ransomware problem. Joe, what do you think? Uh, it's nice to know that there are people out there working uh, to hack the bad guys. <laughs> right. Uh, that's nice. Nice yeah. to know. Uh, ransomware is software that's developed by people. People are vulner- uh, People write vulnerable software. Right. And uh, these guys go around and find these vulnerabilities and exploit them. And the result is free, descrip- free decryption. Yeah. Free de- description. I can give you a free description of anything, Dave. <laughs> uh, free decryption of your encrypted data, which is wonderful. These guys have been doing this for a long time. Yeah, uh, It's good stuff. One of the uh, things that sticks out in this article is they were talking about Fabian, who lived in Germany and had to move to the UK because he thought the Russian mob was after him. Yeah, That's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I don't know what I would do in that situation. Yeah, I mean, you find yourself with a, an unfriendly relationship with gravity. Right, yeah. Tossed out of a window. Uh, Renee said that both sides of this equation are crypto experts. Um, I wouldn't say that about the ransomware gangs, although now more so I would say that. But when this first started, the authors of ransomware were essentially crypto users. Uh, and if they had done it properly then the security researchers would not have been able to break it. Mm-hmm. Um, it would have been, you just have to pay the ransom or reformat your hard drive and start all over. Yeah. Um, but these guys are, uh, these guys are out for the quick buck. Uh, and it's, it's a business to them. It's, it's a business. And that's what they're doing. They're looking to minimize costs, including the cost of time. So they're going to write uh, crypto that works well and, or that works good enough to get the money. Right. Barely sufficient software, Dave. It's an agile principle. (laughs) Right. So here's my main question about this whole thing is why isn't Michael Gillespie working for some security company? Mm, Don't know. It's interesting. Uh, Renee makes the observation that a lot of these guys don't have college degrees. Yeah. Which, uh, again, speaks to, you know, the the hiring problem. I say problem in, in quotation marks, the cybersecurity skills gap. Here's a guy that's that's actually gone out, reverse engineered ransomware, broken it, and posted it up on his website. And he works repairing hard drives at a, like a Geek Squad place. Yeah, um, you know this. Why is why is that the case? Yeah, who knows? I mean, there might be circumstances that, that keeps him from right. being able to to do that sort sure, of thing. Sure, there, there's that. Yeah, but, maybe he or maybe he just enjoys enjoys keeping it an avocation and not a vocation. Right. Yeah. Maybe. All right. Well, again, our thanks to Daniel Golden and Renee Dudley for joining us. Uh, Once again, the name of the book is The Ransomware Hunting Team, a band of misfits improbable crusade to save the world from cybercrime. Do check that out. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. Our thanks to Harbor Labs and the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at harborlabs.com and isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. Thank you.